The ideas and opinions expressed in this show do not reflect the views of WHMP or Saga Communications. This show may contain subject matter not suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Nothing in life is of any value unless it is shared with others. Hi, I'm Lisa Riley, and happy 2024 to a new season of The Hustler Files. We're here each week to share the narratives of people and programs, both inside and outside the criminal justice system, the reality of life behind the wall, the stigmas that surround those who have been impacted by the justice system, and the inspiring stories of those who are hustling to prove that failure isn't final. This is The Hustler Files. Welcome, everyone, to 2024 and a new year of The Hustler Files. Once again this year, we look forward to continuing to bring you impactful, educational, and relevant stories from in and outside the criminal justice system. I'm excited to start our new year with a continuation of a conversation we had at the end of 2023 around medical parole and end-of-life in prison. I'm welcoming back Ada Lynn, attorney with the Prisoners Legal Services of Massachusetts, and with her today is Dr. Alice Bookman, Head of Medical Partnerships for Prisoners Legal Services of Massachusetts as well. So Ada and Alice, welcome to The Hustler Files. Thank Thank you so much. Happy to be here. All right. So Ada, let's start with you. Why don't you give our listeners a couple minute background on the medical parole bill in case they didn't catch the show that we just came off of with Representative Mindy Dom? Sure. So um, I'll um, give a little bit of background on the medical parole statute to begin with. So um, in April of 2018, the Massachusetts State Legislature enacted um, the Criminal Justice Reform Act, which is an omnibus uh, criminal justice reform bill, and it included provisions around medical parole, which in a lot of states is known as compassionate release. And so what the medical parole bill statute says is that if an incarcerated person is either terminally ill, meaning that they're likely to die within the next 18 months, or if they're permanently cognitively or physically incapacitated and they don't pose any risk to public safety, they're entitled to release under the statute. The decision maker in these cases is the commissioner of corrections of the of the DOC, who determines whether the person meets those medical qualifications and also the public safety qualifications. And the, the statute is unique in that it actually requires a physician to make the initial determination of whether the person meets the term illness or permanent incapacitation qualifications. And so that's why actually uh, physicians like Alice are involved in, in these matters is they help provide that opinion. You know, over the course of the years have noticed some really major systemic barriers to medical parole despite the existence of the statute that makes it very difficult or sometimes even impossible for people to get out even when they are dying or permanently incapacitated. So for example, um, over the years we saw that there were numerous people with dementia, which has become a major problem in prisons who were not able to access medical parole in the first place because they did not know the statute existed. They may not even at this point in time, depending on the severity of their illness, understand that they're still incarcerated. And so they had no way of reaching out for legal support. There are other issues including that, you know, if there are there's a shortage 
shortage of skilled nursing beds. Um, there's a question of whether somebody who's released on medical parole actually has a place to go upon release. And this is all very wrapped up in sort of questions around public safety and, you know, the usefulness of the statute as a mechanism for release, given, you know, how full our prison population is. So the medical parole reform bill, which is filed by Senator Patricia Jalen and Representative Mindy Dom, was filed to try to correct a lot of these issues. And so it basically tries to create an expedited process for people who are dying within a shorter period. And it also requires the DOC to notify families and advocacy organizations of individuals who might qualify based on dementia or some other permanent cognitive incapacitation. And it's currently pending before the Committee on Public Safety and Homeland Security, which is going to hold a public hearing actually next week um, on this bill and other corrections and parole-related bills. So, yeah, happy to say more, but that's sort of the the overview of of where the statute is and and why it's necessary. Well, first of all, that's wonderful that it's moving and it's going to get a hearing on the public safety side. Has the bill had its hearing on the actual medical parole side of it? When when bills are filed, they're usually sent to an initial committee of the legislature that um, has some subject matter expertise that considers whether the bill should move forward. And so right now the bill is being heard by the Committee on Public Safety and Homeland Security, and they will decide whether or not the um, the bill is able to move forward into another committee that's more budgetary focused and then further on into the House and Senate for a vote. So this is sort of just the initial stage. Um, and the hearing is important because it allows members of the public to you know, contribute thoughts on the bill, um, provide advice and expertise, and it also gives the legislature an the the ability to hear directly from formerly incarcerated people and their families. So, Alice, let's jump over to you for a second. How did you get involved in this world of medical parole? You have quite a history of working with Harvard Medical School. You're a faculty member on the Department of Emergency Medicine at Brigham and Women's Hospital, which is a really well-known worldwide hospital out of Boston. What inspired you to go down this path in your medical career? Well, I mean, the short answer is soccer mom friend. (laughs) The long answer is I went into medicine basically to try and help the people who were shafted in our society. Um, That was what my motivation has kind of always been. And I've been a little agnostic to what area I've worked on. I worked in global health, then had some small children. And in the emergency department, one person has called it the world's or modern day cathedral, where we really see all of the social problems of our communities kind of come to roost. So it, it's a natural extension, I think, of my work in the emergency department to be interested in this population that is, you know, beyond marginalized, that is hidden behind walls and really thought of as some of the most undeserving of our of our patients, having that lens of everybody's a potential patient uh, when you're when you're a physician. But my a good friend of mine is the mom of my son's best friend, and she was leading this work and said, hey, we need a doctor, because it turns out that 40% of the advocacy that we're doing at Prisoner Legal Services is actually around medical care. So she asked me to help think through what that position might look like. And as I was helping her do that, I said, gosh, you know, I don't have a ton of, I really have no experience in carceral health, but it's really uh, interesting and compelling work. So if you don't find somebody else more qualified, I'd be happy to 
to do this. And that's how I ended up in my, in my current role. And I've learned a ton over the past three years from people like Ada in this work. So is this a full-time gig for you now that, that you, with Prisoner Legal Services, or do you still wear um, the different hats at the different emergency yeah. rooms? No, I, I wear a bunch of different hats. I work clinically at the Brigham and the Faulkner. I'm the medical director in the Faulkner Emergency Department and have some academic pursuits. But um, this, is, this is a big chunk of my, my work. And what's been really nice is I've been able to translate it into work that I'm doing inside the hospitals as well in terms of how do we treat people who are embroiled in the quote-unquote justice system who come into our community hospitals and what resources does the sort of lay medical community have to, to turn to when they're trying to treat this population. You mention in your bio, and I know physicians take that Hippocratic Oath and you know, you'll treat anyone despite of any you know, racial or poverty or wealth or any of it. But you mentioned in here something really interesting that your focus has been to improve management of agitated patients and reduce bias in restraint use, increase addiction treatment access, implement screening for social detriments of health, and improve the care of patients engaged in the legal system. I want to go back to the bias part, because that really jumped out at me in your bio. Is there still a lot of bias, even in an emergency department setting? Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think, like I said, the, the emergency department kind of crystallizes all the problems we have in our society. So anything that exists out in the wider society will be sort of concentrated in the emergency department, including our biases and um, our patients' biases. Right now, it's really, I think, across the country, a crisis in emergency departments of overcrowding, poor staffing, poor outpatient resources, um, including mental health resources, as well as poor access to shelter. Put on top of that, um, increasingly large migrant population, housing crisis. You have a lot of people that are not at their best, having their worst day on top of that um, in the emergency department. And so they often are showing their worst selves. And that can include our staff when they get to the point of, of burnout. What we have, we have this interesting phenomenon happening where we, we know that there is bias in who gets restrained in our emergency departments and whose security gets called on. So we know that we restrain especially African-American men at much higher rates than their white counterparts, as well as non-English speaking men and people who are unhoused, people on Medicaid. Basically, restraint runs along the same fault lines of, of all the other social inequalities that we see. But at the same time, you have this increasing focus on workplace violence, in part because we have fewer resources to deal with it. It may or may not be increasing, actually, in how prevalent it is. But there's sort of a decreased tolerance for the poor behavior of somebody who is in crisis. And I see these two things as in some ways, feeding each other and in a, in a really kind of unfortunate way where I think we're starting to lose more empathy for our patients who are in crisis and it's allowing those biases to even play more of a role. So it's, it's, a, really, it's a really tough time right now in American emergency departments. That makes me so sad to hear, but then on the flip side, doctors like yourself who are championing the cause with medical parole and treating incarcerated individuals is definitely to be applauded. We're going to have to go to break in a second. I want to come back and talk 
Ada, about what you've seen, because I know that was an important part of the conversation that we didn't get to have in our last conversation. And then I'd like to know, and you can think ahead on this, on how you work together when you're with a specific incarcerated individual that needs both of you in their world, that it's not just the legal side or the medical side, but they need both. So if we can think about that conversation coming up and listeners go grab another quick cup of coffee because we'll be right back with Ada Lynn, Dr. Alice Bookman, and this week with The Hustler Files. Hello, this is Glenn Sexton, Superintendent and Special Sheriff of the Hampshire County Sheriff's Office and Correctional Center located in Northampton, Massachusetts. If you are considering a career in the field of corrections and public safety, as well as working for an agency that prides itself on integrity, dedication, and professionalism, then please visit our website, HampshireSheriffs.com. We currently have open positions in security, health services, counseling, treatment, and education. Thank you. We look forward to hearing from you. Welcome back to this week's The Hustler Files. I'm Lisa Riley, and if you're just joining us, we're having a really engaging discussion with attorney Ada Lynn and Dr. Alice Bookman, who both work for the Prisoners Legal Services in Massachusetts and are very heavily involved in medical parole and the treatment of incarcerated individuals who are aging out of the prison system. So Ada, let's jump right in here and talk about something that I know is very near and dear to your heart and something you wanted to share with us in our last conversation. Give us a breakdown of what it's like to go into a prison setting and have a client who is passing away from something that they cannot get paroled to leave the jail for? Sure. It's, it's definitely one of the hardest experiences um, I ever have through, through my work as an attorney. It must be incredibly difficult also for the families and friends of people who are dying, who are incarcerated. You know, generally speaking, we've seen more and more people who are aging and dying in the Massachusetts state prison system, and that's the case across the country as well. I think in Massachusetts, the percentage of incarcerated people aged 60 and over has increased from 10% in 2018 to 15% in 2023, which is a really huge jump. And even among all the states across the country, Massachusetts has one of the highest by percentage elderly prison populations. So we're dealing with a really huge crisis around aging where it impacts not just the person's individual health care um, and sort of daily daily needs, but it also impacts the correctional system at large. So you have, you know, a larger and larger population of people with age-related cognitive disabilities, including dementia. Um, and, you know, what that results in is more and more people who are wandering their facilities who um, may not know how to brush their own teeth or may not remember to take medication. Um, they're people who need assistance with walking, sort of everything that you see in the community, but magnified because a lot of prisons are just not, uh, the physical structure of the prison itself was never built for somebody in their 60s or 70s or 80s or 90s. And so I think it's been pretty alarming, even in the short time that I've been at PLS, about the last two, two and a half years, to see more and more people who are in this condition, uh, who need a really high level of of medical care. In terms of what it's like to, you know, to pass away in these settings, I think I can't speak for my clients or their families, but can speak uh, to what I've seen. And what we typically see is that if somebody has an end-stage uh, illness, has cancer, 
um, that is untreatable. They're typically treated at Lemuel Shattuck Hospital in Jamaica Plain. Here in Boston, there's a specialized correctional unit there. So it's, it's a, a normal functioning hospital, but there is a correctional unit that sort of behaves a little bit like a prison infirmary unit. The costs of housing somebody in a correctional unit like this are extraordinarily high. I think that there's data that indicates that it's, it costs on average more than $400,000 per year to incarcerate somebody in that correctional unit at Shattuck. And this is where a lot of people who are eligible for release on medical parole actually die because they need access to chemotherapy, they need around-the-clock nursing care. And so I think that, you know, in these circumstances, you know, they're, they're usually in a hospital bed. Oftentimes they're alone in a room without much contact with any other incarcerated person. So even the community ties uh, within prison that they had that sort of supported them and that would have supported them uh, towards life, end of life are, are missing. And then there's sort of another category of people. There's the, always the category of people who die unexpectedly in the facility, and that's always really tragic. And there's a third category of individuals who are sent to hospitals in the Boston area or close to the prison for additional treatment. And so, you know, these include individuals who receive treatment from an oncologist at Boston Medical Center who are sent there because they only have a few weeks left to live. And at these hospitals, traditionally or typically um, in the past, they were shackled to the hospital beds. So what I've seen is that there's typically a restraint on the legs. So the legs are shackled to the bed, which means that, you know, if you're not comfortable, it can be really difficult to move. Circulation can be difficult. And, you know, the hospitals, there's really been a movement underway within physicians in Massachusetts to challenge, you know, hospital shackling policies to really consider, does this person pose any risk to public safety, especially if they are dying and they're not able to move very readily on their own. Is this part of, you know, humane end-of-life treatment? You know, is this what the person needs? You know, and, and I think often, oftentimes, in, in the vast majority of cases, the answer is no, that it is inhumane to, to have somebody shackled to a hospital bed at the end of life. I just wanted to jump in real quick and ask Alice while we're on this subject. Alice, have you encountered that? in your experience in the last few years with PLS in the emergency rooms? Yeah, for sure. And this is actually an area that Ada and I have worked really closely on, um, unfortunately, sometimes advocating for individuals who are facing this death in a hospital shackled. It's one of the most gut-wrenching things that I think any of us who've gone through medical training experiences is seeing people shackled who are intubated and sedated. It's really just at a very visceral level feels wrong. And so there's this remarkable group of medical students at BU Medical School who as first years started a campaign called the Stop Shackling Coalition. And they were able to get BMC to alter their policy. They're called forensic patient policies, which I think is kind of a terrible name for it. It makes it sound like things are covered in formaldehyde or something. But that they uh, would be able to consider uh, releasing people from shackles in cases of either end of life or the person is clearly not going to be a risk. They are paralyzed. They are sedated. There's sort of a whole list of things that you can imagine would make somebody not a danger. The thing that's really tricky about shackling is that it is not the hospitals that are shackling these patients. We do restrain people, right? And that's, that's, a separate, that's a different kind of restraint. These are called administrative restraints is the euphemistic term that they use for it. And these are restraints that are applied by the guarding body. So if it's Department of Corrections or, you know, the Boston Police Department, whoever is, has that patient under their custody. And we don't have any 
authority to say, you must release this person. That said, we do have the ability to ask them. So it seems like kind of a low bar to say, we are now trying to make it so that we ask the guarding facility for permission to release people who clearly pose no risk from shackles so that they can receive dignified care. And one of the ways that we got interest in this was actually going to our ethics committee at one of our smaller hospitals, um, actually a hospital where the shattuck that, that Ada mentioned often sends its patients to when they are near death. And we do get patients. We get them usually quite ill. And there was a patient in the intensive care unit, this is during COVID, came in, intubated for COVID, um, and unfortunately was clearly dying. And that was a really tough experience for that staff to go through. And I think that, you know, when we talk about one of the reasons that we want to improve these things, it's both for the patients, but it's also for the staff. It is a horrible, horrible feeling when you're taking care of somebody, but you're really not allowed to take care of them in a way that feels dignified. And, you know, I think you could say this is a pretty low, low-hanging fruit to say, let's work on trying to make sure people don't die shackled. But it felt like a reasonable place to start um, and a place where you could get people on board. Since, again, I think it's a really visceral experience that people have had. If anyone's had to do CPR on somebody who is shackled or anybody has been told they cannot reach out to the family of somebody who is actively dying because there are security concerns that someone may come and try to break them out of that facility. I think those are the experiences that really burn into your your brain and your soul as a clinician. And to the degree that we're able to to use that trauma and turn it into action, I think, or I hope that we're going to be successful in moving the needle on how we care for people in our communities. I'm sitting here sort of holding my breath because this is a conversation we've not had and and we're not going to have time today to go down this road because there's the whole other side to that, which goes back many years to the fact that pregnant women in prison used to be shackled during childbirth. And that has pretty much, I think, ceased around the country. But that's another conversation. We'll have to save that for another day. We are going to run out of time. So before we do, and I probably will have both of you come back at another date and time because there's so much more to discuss here. Ada, if you could do it in a minute, this would be great because I want to get to my end of show question to both of you. How do you and Alice collaborate in this medical legal partnership that you've formed? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, what we loosely have formed is something called a medical legal partnership, which exists in, you know, cities and and states all across the country. And it's basically a reference to when attorneys and clinicians work together, when they collaborate on case issues, um, things like medical parole petitions. It's a phenomenon that happens in the housing um, space, the employment justice space all over. And so we've really just sort of um, replicated what a lot of other people have done with support from an organization called the Medical Justice Alliance, which is a national organization that helps clinicians link up with attorneys working on um, issues involving carceral health care. So sometimes what it looks like is that Alice will review medical records for a client of mine and actually go visit the client in person to do a medical evaluation. And these petitions uh, get filed along with Alice's opinion letter, which is incredibly helpful, especially where it relates to um, an, an issue that Alice or another specialist focuses on already. And I think that these are really important because we consider them experts, you know, in, in their field and in the healthcare that the person needs. And so when decision makers like the commissioner of correction or a judge looks at Alice's letter, um, they see that the person 
providing the letter is credible, that the person is familiar with the patient's or the client's care, and I think is more ready to, to sort of take uh, the legal argument seriously. And I think it really also plays a big role in illustrating the medical conditions and the trajectory of the person's illness a lot better than we could as, as lawyers. So it's been a really fruitful partnership. I think that actually the rate of people we've been able to get out on medical parole has increased uh, when we has increased since we started working with physicians. So, um, And it's also just really an honor to, to get to sort of do interdisciplinary work and to learn from clinicians who have their own framework for thinking about these issues, and in many cases, a better one. It's wonderful. And I am sure between the two of you, we could talk for hours about this subject. But before we end the show... I do need to ask you my personal question that I ask all my guests. And Ada, I already asked you once, so you're prepared because maybe things have changed in the last few weeks. One never knows. But Alice, I'll ask you first. I'm a big believer we all have assignments of life. And they can change. They can grow. They can adjust. We can finish one and move on to another. But at this point in your life, what do you think your assignment of life is? I love that idea. Um, I think mine is to be useful. I think I've had a lot of privilege and and opportunities, so that's really been my guiding principle is how can I be useful. I love that. I don't think we've had anybody say useful yet. I think that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that. And Ada, I know you told our audience and listeners once before, but if it's the same as it was a month ago, go for it. Yeah, um, I, I want to borrow Alice's. I think it was actually pretty similar to Alice's. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I just really want to use the, the opportunities I have to to make sure that people inside have a voice and a say in the decision-making that impacts their lives directly. Um, so, yeah, I think this work definitely has been able to, to support that, um, and let's see how far we can take that. Well... You're both amazing women, and I am so privileged and honored to get to spend this time chatting with you about the work that you do and share your stories, and hopefully we can get back together uh, some point in 2024 and, and dig in a little bit more. Listeners, we still have to close up the show, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with this week's The Hustler Files. Join the Hamden County Sheriff's Office medical team. We offer professional medical and mental health care during and after incarceration, following a revered public health model. We're hiring for nursing and supervisory roles, offering a less hectic case than hospitals, a state pension, benefits, and potential retirement after 20 years. Our firm but fair approach to corrections has been emulated nationwide. We're not your average law enforcement agency. Visit our website to learn more. We are back, and I think it's fitting in this new year to share the thoughts on the power of one word. Instead of crafting extensive lists of resolutions, best-selling author and keynote speaker John Gordon suggests a transformative alternative, embrace the power of one word, choosing a single word to guide our year. Gordon feels simplicity is the key to overcoming distractions and fostering deeper purpose, commitment, and success in 2024. The chosen word has the ability to impact all aspects of our lives, mental, physical, emotional, relational, spiritual, and financial. How do you discover your one word? 
Well, reflect on your values, desires, and areas of growth and impact. In a world saturated with complex goals and overwhelming resolutions, embracing the simplicity of one word can be a game changer. This year, let your one word be the driving force that propels you toward a more fulfilling and meaningful future. Find your word, live it, and share it. And that's a wrap on our first episode of 2024. I want to thank our guests and advertisers for their continuing support. Remember, you can find all of our shows on the whmp.com podcast page or on any of your favorite podcast sites. Have a wonderful week ahead. And remember, don't be ashamed of your story. It will inspire others. See you next week right here on The Hustler Files. (laughs) 